Hey, everybody. It's Mary. Every once in a while, I like to drop something in your feed, tell you about a new podcast that I'm loving that I think you should check out, too. This is one of those times. The United States of Anxiety from Kai Wright and WNYC Studios. They just launched their fourth season. And what I love about this podcast is that it's an election podcast unlike any other election podcast. That's because Kai breaks down the conversations that we're having right now in the 2020 election about race, about the economy, and he traces the roots of those conversations all the way back through history. So I'm going to let him take it from here. He'll give you a little bit of their first episode. I met a new friend last fall. Hey, Vernita. Hey, how are you? I'm a woman named Vernita Blocker. And the thing about Vernita is she grew up country. So I don't know if you have ever heard of this, but you can make snow cream, snow ice cream. And she told me all these rustic stories about stuff she did as a kid in Mississippi. Now, how they did it, don't ask me. I was a little girl, but I remember (laughs) it tasted good. You you could not pay me to eat some ice cream made from snow that fell from the sky any place I have ever lived. Kai, you would have eaten this snow ice cream. It was good. <laughs> I mean, my mom's pretty country herself, and I've spent a lot of time in the South, so I can relate a little. But Vernita's childhood in the Mississippi Delta, this is another level for me. She was raised by her grandparents, who were farmers. Mostly cotton. Most of the time, they planted cotton, and that's what they grew on the land. That was the cash crop, which didn't make much cash. So the rest kept them fed. My grandmother always had a large garden, and she also had uh, hogs, and she had chickens as well. They were very resourceful in using everything that was on the land. They would take, like, the ham of the hog, and they would salt it down. And that ham wasn't put in the refrigerator. That ham was put in a wooden box, and it was preserved through this real coarse salt process. And so that would be fresh meat for us to eat, you know, for several months. And listen, this is the 1960s in rural Mississippi, and I got to assume life was not easy for Black folks there. But Vernita gives me nothing but rosy memories. She even laughs about the time their house caught on fire. We're not sure how it caught. But But it burnt all the way to the ground. So they bought an old house from a neighbor, like a whole house, moved the whole thing to their farm, and then renovated it themselves. And that, you guys, was when we got a bathroom. Until the house burned, we used an outhouse. Oh, y'all got me talking too much. My family gonna have a fit. They gonna say, you say it all that? Y'all bring out too much information. So here's the deal. Vernita's family and the land they raised her on tell a piece of the Mississippi Delta story that I've never really heard before. I mean, we know the Mississippi Delta, right? It's the birthplace of the blues, the place where Black Americans did our usual thing, turning pain into poetry. It's where the legendary Robert Johnson is said to have sold his soul to the devil at a highway junction about 20 minutes from Vernita's childhood farm. It's where Muddy Waters sat on his porch and helped create the sound that would become rock and roll. 
And by the time Vernita was a little girl, it's where Fannie Lou Hamer was organizing Freedom Summer, risking her life to try, failingly, to bring multiracial democracy into the state of Mississippi. It was the 31st of August in 1962 that 18 of us traveled 26 miles. There is a rich but hard and grim history of Black life in the Delta. Vernita, though, she felt quite safe and secure because she was sheltered on that farm in her grandparents' care. For me, it was just a way of life. I never thought I was poor until much later in life. I look back on it and I was like, we were really poor. We really didn't have much because I felt like we didn't want for anything. We had clothing. We had shelter. We had transportation. I don't feel like I was deprived as a child. The land itself belonged to her grandmother, Lily Lester. And Vernita describes Lily as, I guess, exactly the kind of badass she'd have to be as a Black woman owning her own land in Jim Crow's Mississippi. She was a type of person that was a go-getter. She was like a business person. She believed in taking care of business. She was very serious about that, so... Lily inherited the land from her own parents, Vernita's great-grandparents. It was 40 acres, and Lily taught her family to be fiercely proud of it. For those of us who didn't grow up um, in a rural environment where land really meant something, what is the emotional attachment, you think, both for your grandmother and yourself, why that was such a big deal that you guys had this land? Ownership. You own your own land. That's something to be proud of. We were surrounded by people who did not own land. They lived on someone else's land. They lived in someone else's house. And it was just always drilled into me, as long as you have breath in your body, to just hold on to the land. Don't ever sell it. But, you know, when I asked Vernita how her family got ownership of the land in the first place, she said this really unexpected thing. The land came about when the government gave Black families 40 acres and a mule. Um, But as far as when it took place, I would like to know more about that. 40 acres and a mule. You have surely heard this phrase. If nothing else, is the name of Spike Lee's production company. It's an idea that began circulating right after the Civil War ended, that freed slaves were promised 40 acres and a mule. But it is really incredibly unlikely that this is the source of Lily's land. Very few people received that promise, and even fewer actually got the land. When Vernita told me that this was her understanding, I got really curious. I went to Mississippi to learn where it came from, and I found a story about an old, fundamental fight in American politics, one that remains at the center of the current political debate. We do not agree on who owns this country's staggering wealth. Those giant corporations like Chevron and Amazon who paid nothing in taxes, we can have them pay. Who are its rightful owners? How does it happen? That when the top 1% owns more wealth than the bottom 92%, half a million people are sleeping out on the streets tonight. Donald Trump has fostered a nostalgia for whites-only prosperity. The forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no longer. But everybody on the political stage, left, right, and center, ordinary middle-class Americans build America, is asking in some form, 
how we can most fairly distribute the incredible resources of the United States? That is a question that dates all the way back to the aftermath of the Civil War. And for at least one promising moment in those post-war years, it's a question the country actually answered for itself. Vernita's family stepped into that moment, and somehow they held their ground where very few others could. The landscape of the Mississippi Delta is vast. Miles and miles of crop fields roll out to the horizon. The expanse is broken up only by thickets of trees that here and there mark off property lines. Long stretches of unpaved roads crisscross those fields on what seems like hard, unforgiving ground. But actually, water lurks everywhere, standing in swampy pools under those tree lines, seeping into ravines dug around the cotton fields. The delta is fertile. Somebody's been coming down here. Yeah, you see tracks. I start my trip here by going to see Vernita's family land. Albert Lester is my guide. He's Vernita's uncle, Lily's youngest child. And he's basically a 94-year-old teenager. I mean, he's just bouncing around these back roads and fields like he's looking for his next adventure. And half the time, I was chasing behind him. Mm-hmm. This is it. That's your, that's, that's it here? This is it. Do you mind if we get out? No. No, no. So what, what you, you would come in down there, right? That's right. That's what you came in. There's a cornerstone in the middle of that road, right there by that tree. We're looking at a long, empty, collapsing A-frame. This is my mother in them house. This is my mother in them house. You can see the remnants of a wide veranda that was likely the building's most proud gesture. It's the house the family got after the fire, when Vernita finally got her indoor bathroom. It's surrounded by a thicket of trees, and beyond that, acres and acres of fields. And did they farm on this land? My mother and them yeah. sure did. They sure did. They farmed, but they home in this little land here behind the house. Renita and everybody who grew up here on this land have already left the state. So Albert's now the land's caretaker, and he rents it out to a white guy to help keep the taxes paid. Albert is a lifelong farmer himself, and just like Vernita, there's a mysticism to how he talks about land ownership. My granddaddy told me, he said, buy you some land. I never did forget that. I never did forget that. I wondered about that land. And uh, I, I heard a fellow tell me, he said, you know what? He said, if you moved in New York, if you tell them folks that you got some land, they'll recognize you. I don't know why, but they will. Mm-hmm. Albert took the advice. He's got 90 acres of his own where he raised 13 children. Hello. How you doing? Just a, a piece off This all family? Y'all got a lot of community right here. Okay, okay. That's a wonderful thing. What's up, Mom? That's a wonderful thing. Obert's wife, Perlene, is 90 years old herself. The two of them have been married for more than 70 years. And you know, I got a sense of why land ownership has meant so much in this family as I listen to them talk about their life together. 
after he came out of service, that's when I met him at church. She met Elbert while ushering at a military funeral. This was just after World War II. She was bored, so when she noticed this guy and his friends hanging around outside the church, she hit him up. But I, we didn't know him, mm-hmm. but we were trying to get to know him, though. <laughs> Elbert had just gotten out of the military. He'd been part of the first cohort of black men to serve in the Marines, and Perlene says he acted the part. To this day, he is a man who walks with ample confidence. Well, I guess that's the reason I got her. I guess that's the reason. These two are sitting in the front room of their farmhouse, literally surrounded by photos of kids and grandkids and great-grandkids posed in graduation gowns and military uniforms. There's a black Jesus portrait and the Obama family photo I've seen on the walls of dozens of black homes around the South. The room is like a shrine to black family pride. It is familiar. But I got to say, listening to two 90-something-year-old black people giggle about being in love, that's new for me. Probably for a lot of people. My grandfathers, they died early. My grandmothers lived to their 90s, but their internal lives, their indiscretions and guilty pleasures, they didn't share that kind of stuff with me. Stuff like the way Perlene was clearly excited by Albert's macho, youthful temper. This one here? Yes, Lord. He was real hateful, but I mean, you know, he didn't—he didn't bother nobody. If you had on his wrong side. Yes, sir. Albert says he was just a product of the Marine Corps. That Marine Corps. It taught him that winning is everything. A lesson that I came to realize has served him well as a black landowner in the Delta. <laughs> That's all that matters. That's all that matters. If you push me in the corner, I had to come out fight. And this is another thing that very few of us get to hear from our black elders what it felt like to live in Jim Crow's world, the emotional scars they accumulated while staying alive. The period Elbert and Perlene are reminiscing about, these are the years after World War II. Elbert was actually one of hundreds of thousands of Black service members returning to their communities full of pride. A little too much pride for white folks. It was a precarious era for Black people, full of countless little conflicts that could turn deadly. Like the time Elbert, his young son, and his father went into town and passed the white sheriff on the sidewalk. And when he and Perlene tell me this story, they repeat the dehumanizing language white people used to throw at them. So, heads up. It goes like this. The sheriff pushed Elbert's son out of the way. My boy was standing by me. He said, my boy, get off this so-and-so-and street. The Marine in Elbert was ready to fight back. But his father grabbed him just in time to prevent an irrevocable mistake. I didn't sleep none that night. Mm -hmm. I rolled all night that night. If it hadn't been for my daddy, I probably wouldn't have been living. Mm -hmm. If I got my hand on him. No, you couldn't put your hand on it. White people, Mm -hmm. they always would lie. They could tell a lie on you and... Send you to prison or mm-hmm. kill you or do anything, but nothing to be done about it. Oh, they going to find some kind of way to say, oh, no, no, no. That nigga did this. That nigga did that. Couldn't able to do nothing but yes, sir, no, sir. 
You couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't do nothing to them. Couldn't do nothing. You know, to stay out of trouble. They was always mm-hmm. right. They were right. You always yeah. wrong. Millions of black families decided not to deal with that. They packed up and left. But this family decided that rather than leave, rather than go north or wherever else, they would stay on their own land and use it as a shield against the wild, random power white people held. But where'd they get the land? Like I said, Albert and Vanita know that Lily inherited it, but they don't know what came before that. So after visiting the land itself, I went into town to start looking for an answer at the county courthouse. And it was like the building itself wanted me to understand the world in which this family lived. Built in 1910, it's a landmark site now. It's a handsome, if intimidating, structure. Stately, with tall white columns along the front and a large inscription across the top. Obedience to the law is liberty. Okay. Tax assessor maps and property records. But these days, black people are behind the desks inside. I'm well, how are you? Yeah, so I am trying to look up some property records. Um, So the current deed is in the name of Lily Lester. L-E-S-T-E-R. The tax assessor finds Lily's deed, and it confirms the family story that Lily got the land from her parents. Their names were Charlie and Addie Dobson, and they did, in fact, own 40 acres. When they died in the 1940s, They gave their land to Lily and her sister. But anything before that, that's not in the electronic records. So I go down the hall to the courthouse library. All those books on this wall, Mm -hmm. to right there, all those are deed books. And you just pull that book. They're these huge, musty old books, like something out of Harry Potter, the General Index of Land Deeds, Quitman County. Each one is like two feet high, six inches thick, worn leather binding. And basically, I got to look for either Charlie or Addie Dobson's name in each book until I find the citation for their deed. And then I can go look up the deed itself to finally see where they got the land. Mm -hmm. And if you want a copy of the deed, we can make you a copy of that deed. Okay. Well, I got my work cut out. (laughs) So I cracked the first book, book number 10, and I turn to the D's. (laughs) It's not in alphabetical order. Well, that sucks. They're grouped by letter, just not in any particular order. So I got to look through all the Ds till I hit a Dobson. Darby, Deniman, Darnell, Dickie, Davis, Darnell, Durham. And eventually I start thinking, maybe they're not in here. I mean, maybe the family doesn't know where Charlie got this land because nobody knows, because it's actually lost to history. Okay... Running out of books here. And then, I think I found it. I think this is it. Charlie Dobson. Now his name is misspelled. And I can't quite make out the word scrawled next to his name, the part that says who held the deed before Charlie. But it's got the citation where to find the deed itself, so I go over to the wall of deed books. Okay. And I turn to page 575. Charlie Dobson, the Y&MVRR Company. The Yazoo and Mississippi Valley Railroad Company. He bought it from the railroad company. $320. In 1904, which I guess that's not what I expected. 
A small black farmer, just one generation removed from slavery, and he's buying land from an interstate corporation? But there it is, 1904, Charlie Dobson signs a contract to pay an Illinois-based railroad company $320 over five years for 40 acres of land. I couldn't wait to share this with Vernita. Oh, wow. All the time I've thought that the land was given to them. The fact that it's very significant, Kai, because in 1904, my great-grandparents purchased land. That's very significant. Because, honestly, it's just not how we're taught the history of that era. If we learn about everyday Black people at all, they're portrayed as poor sharecroppers scratching out a life. Not as people buying land from large corporations. Which begs a couple questions. Who were Charlie and Addie Dobson? And how unique was this land deal they found? First, to set the record straight on the whole question of the post-Civil War land giveaway, I talked to historian Eric Foner. I'm the author of The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. And he's one of the world's leading historians on the era known as Reconstruction, which followed the Civil War. Forty acres and a mule, that phrase reflects the fact that African-Americans thought that with the end of slavery should come, they didn't use the word reparations, but it would more like compensation for the labor they had done. That was their idea of economic freedom, to go along with this sort of legal freedom of the abolition of slavery. The phrase itself echoes an order issued by a Union Army general near the end of the war. So it comes from Sherman's order in January, Field Order 15 in January 1865. The Civil War is still on, although it's pretty clear it's coming toward an end. And as General Sherman famously marches through Georgia, taking Confederate land, thousands of enslaved people flee to safety behind his lines. That becomes untenable. Sherman is not equipped to support thousands of starving people. So he meets with a bunch of black community leaders who tell him, listen, we just need land and we will take care of ourselves. General Sherman figures, great, problem solved. He issues an order saying, give each person 40 acres of all that land I just seized in South Carolina and an estimated 40,000 newly freed people get what becomes known as Sherman land. But then Andrew Johnson comes in after Lincoln's assassinated, a deep, deep racist who had no interest in what the rights of blacks were going to be. And um, And Johnson takes it all away, gives it back to the former slaveholders. More than that, he stops any real effort at federal land redistribution. But in the end, it didn't happen. You might say the political revolution went forward, but the economic revolution stalled once slavery is abolished. So no 40 acres and a mule. But now here's Charlie and Eddie, probably children of formerly enslaved people, making real estate deals with interstate corporations. How was he able to purchase land? I'm curious as to, you know, back then, how did he even get that money to purchase land in 1904? Good question. To begin figuring out Charlie and Addie's lives, I called up another historian, a guy named John Willis, who several years ago had the same kind of head-scratching moment that I had when I saw Charlie's deed. He wrote a book called Forgotten Time, the Yazoo, Mississippi Delta after the Civil War. I came across a strange statistic in the census records, and this book really was an effort to figure that out. I had two questions. Why was it in 1900 that two-thirds of the farm owners in the Delta were black. And 
why did it change so dramatically that nobody's ever heard of all these black farmers? Not just farmers, but farm owners. Well, so I have encountered one of those families. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, it's a family that has the land that they bought um, still in their family today. That the- I give him the quick recap. Vernita's grandmother inherited the land in the 1940s. Vernita assumed it came from 40 acres and a mule until I found Charlie Dobson's 1904 land deal. Tell me a little bit more about what you know about the Dobson family. So I have traced it back to a guy named Charlie Dobson. Everything I know comes from the census records, which aren't totally clear. But from what I can tell, sometime before the turn of the century, Charlie and Addie migrated to the Delta from North Carolina. They appear to have been born in the 1870s. So again, first generation born after emancipation. That means Charlie was about 20 years old when they moved. Addie was younger. I imagine them flush with the certainty of their youth, packing up to trek some seven, eight hundred miles, trying to make a life somewhere. And I wonder how that felt. I mean, did it seem like an incredible risk to be a young black couple traversing the South, presumably without much money? Or was it actually kind of exciting because, hey, what's there to lose? John Willis says whatever the Dobsons felt, they were actually quite typical of the time. They were at the tail end of the first mass migration of black Americans. A lot of people were moving around after slavery. More than three million people, formerly enslaved, looking for opportunity. Movement was the rule, not the exception. We know that there are really three main sorts of places that ex-slaves went after they're freed. A lot of them went to the city. To just get a totally new life. Others went to established plantation belts where they could get work on farms. The third place that slaves went were places like the Delta. Places with undeveloped, available land. Not long after he was born, the Delta was still 90% wilderness. And when I say wilderness, I mean it's subject to overflow from the Mississippi. It's covered in tall forests of hardwood trees. It's still got black bears and panthers roaming around. And uh, what's been going on throughout his life by the time he buys that land is that black farmers have been moving in and working their way up from renting, uh, often to being able to own their land. And it's a weird situation. It's not like any other part of the South we know of. Uh, These are farmers who are owning, at one point on average, 180 acres. At another point, uh, the average was 160 acres. These are sizable plots of land, and this was the most fertile land known anywhere on the earth. And if you were able, to gain control of some of this land, you had a good chance to be able to support yourself and maybe maybe buy more. But still, how in the hell did two-thirds of this fertile land end up in the hands of black owners like Charlie and Addie? The answer, and I did not see this coming, is tax policy. That's next. That was Kai Wright the host of United States of Anxiety from WNYC Studios. To learn more about what Kai found in the Mississippi Delta, go subscribe to the United States of Anxiety wherever you get your podcasts.